Hello, this is Rabbi Rob Doberson, and welcome to this edition of Wrestling and Dreaming. This week, on Wednesday night and Thursday, we observe the fast date of Tisha B'Av, the 9th of Av. It is the saddest day on the Jewish calendar, this day in which we mourn the destruction of the two temples in Jerusalem during biblical and post-biblical times, and several other tragic events which happened in the history of the Jewish people, which have been attributed, ascribed to this day of the ninth above. It is the day of sadness, and it is a day to think about the concept of mourning. I'd like to share with you, in recognition of Tisha B'Av, a sermon that I delivered on Yom Kippur in the year 2008. I mentioned the year because, as you'll hear from the sermon, Many of the references are based upon the year in which I'm giving the sermon. And I want to read it the way that it was given. So keep in mind it was written in 2008 for the Yizka service. It happens to be one of my favorite sermons, and it appears as the last sermon in the book, The Long Way Around Stories and Sermons from a Life's Journey, which I published several years ago. The sermon is called Remembering, Always Remembering. And again, it was delivered for the Yizka service, the memorial service, on Yom Kippur 2008. The number seven is a very meaningful number in Jewish tradition. It connotes completeness. At least it usually does. It certainly doesn't mean completeness when it is used in connection with sitting Shiva. Shiva means seven in Hebrew. But when the seven days of mourning have been completed, the mourning process is far from over. Seven years ago, I stood on this bima on the most sacred day of the year, on Yom Kippur, and told you that during the year before, I had joined a chevra, a society, a club. It wasn't the club I sought admission to, but one which no doubt I anticipated joining at some point in my life. I had joined the chevra kadosha, the holy society of mourners. My father, Manny Dobberson, Alava Shalom, had died in March, just short of his 80th birthday, after a long and worsening series of illnesses. That Yom Kippur morning, I reflected on what the experience of my father's death had meant to me, and what I was beginning to learn about being a mourner. I say beginning to learn because, as I said that day, I learned one thing very early in the process of being a mourner. I was never going to lose my membership in that club, even though Shiva would end and even though I would return to more or less the life I always led. I would never stop mourning. Once you are a mourner, you remain a mourner all of your life, and I have learned how true that is over the past seven years. To those of you who have joined this chevra, my sincere condolences to you. I know that it must be difficult to hear me say that you will be a mourner for the rest of your life. But please understand that this is not intended to make your situation more difficult, but rather to give you a more positive sense of what it means to be a mourner. The sense will not come immediately, but will someday bring a new understanding to what it means to mourn. And now it's time for a true story. My story today is about a 53-year-old love affair and the memories it carries. Like the house that is the setting for this story, the story has many different angles, and you can choose the one that resonates with you. But please take note that like so many other significant American stories, 
It begins and ends with baseball. I am a loyal, passionate Red Sox fan. I will tell anyone who will listen, and even those who won't. My wife and kids know the whole routine by heart. My friends and congregants hear about it more often than they'd like. They've all learned to put up with it. I was taught to be a Red Sox fan before I knew how to speak. I saw my first Sox game at Fenway Park when I was hardly big enough to walk up the stairs or to see around the pole that was inevitably in front of my seat. The Sox accompanied us always. Our house was filled with the sounds of Red Sox baseball on TV, or more likely when I was young, on the radio. If you're a New Englander, you'll understand. We lived in the Brighton neighborhood of Boston, a few short miles from Fenway. My grandmother bought the house in the late 1940s, and my parents moved in with her just after my older brother was born in 1952. I lived in that one house, our house, from the day I was brought home from the hospital until the day I left for college. On March 6, 2001, my father fell getting out of bed. The paramedics took him to the hospital just to check him out. As it turned out, he required emergency surgery and died in the hospital a week later, never returning home again. He never got to say goodbye to the house. He also didn't live to see the Red Sox win a World Series. That day he had always dreamed of came three years after his death. And in late autumn 2004, I flew back to Boston from Michigan to join the tens of thousands of Red Sox fans who went to cemeteries to leave a Red Sox hat on the grave of someone they love. In 2002, my mother sold the house to someone who planned to turn it into student apartments. She took one long look at the home she had raised her children in, taken care of her mother and later my father in, and moved out to Michigan to be with us. She never saw the house again. Every year or so, my brother and I go back to visit our parents' graves and to take a look at the house. One time we went together and we knocked on the door and were invited in. There were a few beer bottles lying around and evidence of a party the night before, but the house seemed like a happy place. Still, I felt a certain sadness each time I looked at the house. Sure, I missed my parents and I missed my youth, but I also felt sadness for the house itself. I felt like we had abandoned it. And I always made it a point to stand in the street and look up to my parents' bedroom window and think of them, and it was always hard to turn away and leave. But I had my memories, and the house understood, I was sure, that this was the way of the world. Then Google Street View came along, and I was a bit concerned. I had read about situations in which there was something embarrassing or inappropriate going on in the picture they posted. I hoped that our house would still look good. After all, this one picture was the reputation it would carry forever and everywhere. I couldn't wait. I went to the website, entered our address, and a picture came up. The house looked nice, fairly well taken care of, and still the same color. I enlarged the picture and saw into one of the windows just enough to feel like I was inside again. And then I zoomed in to look at my parents' bedroom window, and I noticed that something was hanging there. I took a closer look and could only stare in disbelief. But thanks to the internet, the picture that now formed the memory for all who couldn't go to visit it and all who wanted to remember of our beautiful house had a giant New York Yankees flag hanging out the window. I am sorry, my dear house, 
look what they did to you. I'm sorry that we left you alone. I'm so sorry that this is how you will be remembered. Well, the next summer, I went up to Boston to make my annual visit to the cemeteries where my parents, grandparents, and great-grandparents are buried. I know why I go, to feel the presence of those always in my heart, but I need to stand at the spot of their burial to fulfill my promise to my parents that I would come. And I need, of course, to make sure their headstones are in good shape and the graves well taken care of. But thanks to, my, thanks to my wife's Ellen's suggestion, I decided to spend a couple of extra days wandering around Massachusetts, driving the back roads I used to travel when I worked at Camp Ramah. So I took a couple of days off to drive around exploring. I had a good time. I saw some great places. But I was overcome by the feeling that except for the Red Sox, one particular view of the Berkshires, and a slice of Boston pizza, nothing seemed quite the same. I felt a bit like a stranger, especially when I visited Camp Ramah, a place I spent part of 13 summers. Everything was beautiful, but it all looked different from what it was when I was there, and no one remembered me or seemed to care. I can't blame them. It had been many years since I worked there. What I learned was that you can go home again, but it won't be the same. When I was a kid, years before TiVo, I used to think that when I turned off the TV, I could go back to it, turn it on, and pick up the cartoon right where I left it. I learned very quickly that was not the case. But we all think that at times. We think that when we step back from a situation, we can re-inject ourselves right back into it, and it won't have changed. And usually, we find we're mistaken. On a pragmatic level, if we walk away from a situation and leave it in the hands of others, it will look different when we return. When we haven't worked at a camp for 15 years, of course no one's going to recognize you. When we sell a house, the new owner can do what she wants to do, including putting up a Yankees flag, which, by the way, I'm happy to report was not there the next time I visited. Nothing stays the way we want it to stay in this world. When we walk away, it changes with time. This is what bothered me so much about the house. I didn't want it to be remembered that way. I blamed Google. But this is the way of the world. We have no control over anything that we have left or lost except for two things. We have a reasonable right to expect that a headstone will not be changed. And more importantly, we have complete control over how we remember our loved ones. And this is what it means to mourn. We can fix in our minds the memory we want to hold on to, picturing our loved ones as we want to remember them. I'm holding here on the beam of the picture of my father the way I want to remember him. A picture taken at a Sunday morning Tolleson to Fillin Club minion at our show, in his corduroy sports jacket with his yarmulke pointed awkwardly, with a happy, contented smile on his face, knowing that the breakfast that he and my mother had just set out for 20 teenagers and some parents had been properly devoured. That's the picture of him I've settled on. I also have a similar image of my mother, with a big smile, serving dessert at Thanksgiving. These are the ones I've chosen, and nothing will change them. This is the way... My parents look in my dreams. These images can't be sold. They can't be renovated. They won't be dimmed by time. They are mine. They are locked into me, and I am keeping them, to borrow a phrase, in the bond of life. Nothing else in life waits for us. Life moves on, and well it should. Thank God it does. But the memories of our loved ones stay with us as we want them to. And this is the blessing of memory. 
So let us realize that as we mourn, a time will come, maybe it will take less than seven years, maybe more, when we'll have settled on the image of our loved ones that we want to set in stone like the headstones we placed for them. And that picture will be at least a shining ray of light to illuminate and bring comfort to the sadness that will inevitably occasionally bubble up to the surface. But that does not mean our mourning has come to an end, for mourning is remembering and cherishing memories. As long as we care, as long as we cry, as long as we hold on to the memory, that image will keep coming up to us to bring comfort. It is the one thing in life that no one else can touch. It is our private memory, and it is ours forever. Forever, that is, as long as we allow ourselves the cherished privilege of remembering, and as long as we accept the holy obligation of being, even at our happiest times, even at our times of great satisfaction and comfort, a mourner. Until next time, thank you.